Trisha Geddes, the Assistant Director of Policy and Strategic Partnerships at CSIS. Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin in the observation room at the University of Ottawa Courthouse. And Stephanie, today we've got a pod site, our last pod site of season two. And so what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to be speaking with Trisha Geddes, who's the Assistant Director for Policy, or as you sometimes call it, ADP, at CSIS, who's going to be talking to us about her career, what her office does, and uh, I guess uh, C-59 and post-C-59 life, in which I'm assuming now everything's just nice and easy. You guys are just sitting back, <laughs> relaxing with That's a what cocktail. You think of when you think of CSIS, you yeah. think of easy, right? So <laughs> easy, so easy, all the time. <laughs> and then also just some issues with regards to how the service is going to be approaching uh, some things going forward with regards to C-59. 59, issues around transparency, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted to be here, truly. Thanks, Trisha. Maybe maybe we should just start by defining for our audience exactly what it is that, that you do in your current role, and then maybe a little bit about how you got there. Yeah, this is a very good question, because how I got here is an interesting, twisted path, so okay. I'm delighted to talk that through. So I am responsible for, I think I'm 80 everything. Uh, I have all <laughs> kinds of very strange things associated with my job, but as diverse as policy, so strategic policy and and operational policy. And we'll probably end up talking quite a bit about strategic policy and what that means for CSIS because it's a relatively important function. I am uh, responsible for foreign relations. So that's our relationship with all of our foreign partners around the globe. And we have many, many of them. Big part of that, obviously, is dealing with human rights assessments and how we manage those relationships. Communications, so internal communications, external communications, external review. So that's our relationship with the new National Security Committee of Parliamentarians and our relationship with the National Security Intelligence Review Agency. So formerly CERC, now in CIRA, that uh, those people that work uh, directly with them work for me. Compliance, so, and I'm happy to talk about compliance, but that's just ensuring that, like any organization, we have to manage our compliance failures. We hope that they are very small in nature, but we identify them, we address them, we make sure we've mitigated them, reported them as required. So I have a number of folks that work for me in that space. And and recently, I've also assumed responsibility for the litigation and disclosure branch, which is one of my favorite parts of my job. I actually find it really interesting. Intelligence evidence. <laughs> That's right. We can talk about that. Drink. For the rest no, of the day. <laughs> yes, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I have become a legal enthusiast, as some of my friends say, because I'm not a lawyer, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about my background, but not a lawyer. I love the, it, though. <laughs> right, because formerly at the service, it was like a like assistant director for legal issues. So is that now all under this one umbrella? No, no not no. at all. We have an assistant. Assistant Director Legal, and okay. that's a Department of Justice. Right, as we've yeah. talked about Employee before. Employee at our organization, absolutely, and he is absolutely wonderful, uh, my colleague Owen. So he's fabulous. So he provides the real legal advice, and so does his amazing team. But uh, we have a branch that had been devoted to addressing current and ongoing litigation matters and dealing with disclosure, as you probably imagine, have experience with. There's lots and lots of things that we need to address from a national security perspective. How do we, how do we ensure that whatever it is that we're disclosing, whether it's in 
a court proceeding or whether it's in ATIP proceedings, how do we make sure that we're not injuring national security by disclosing? So a lot of my branch work on that. But to your point, Craig, and apparently we're not allowed to talk about intel and evidence, but <laughs> but to your point. It's, just, it's July. It's yeah, like, I hear you. It's a gateway drug. Yeah, it is. It's so hot outside. <laughs> but it is something I've devoted a lot of my time and thinking to in the last year or so. And so the, that branch is actually um, responsible for how we manage the sort of the finesse uh, that is uh, ensuring that our intelligence can be used, whether it's used by the RCMP or whether it's used by a whole bunch of other clients. So that's something that they do. So that's my that's my remit. And uh, you know, it's funny. My um, our executive team went for lunch right before I came here, and it's really rare. But we went out with the director, and we were supposed to be there at noon. And everybody kind of cleared out and went to lunch. And I was sending the director text messages saying, "I'll be there soon." I clearly have the toughest job, but I'm just <laughs> joking. All my colleagues have extremely difficult jobs. But mine is the one that is most likely to sort of flare up. Mine is the one that has it's the public least facing. That's it. Right. Exactly. So there's less predictability for sure with my job. But operations obviously is very I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that flare up on the operational side too. So there's no question about it. And when it becomes public, then it's your issue. That's right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Exactly. So anyway, I have we we have the best group of colleagues right now. As we were sitting there having lunch, uh, the director was pointing out that we've had a massive turnover. There was only one person that was on the executive when he started two years ago that is still there. Uh, I was on the executive but in an acting position and was confirmed just a few months later. But that's a huge turnover. And uh, the face of the executive cadre at, at the service has changed enormously. And I think it reflects a, a number of different issues. But I'm just – I'm so – impressed and respectful about the balance that we've been able to achieve on our executive team. So There's more women. There's a lot That's more women. That's the first women. thing I'm thinking of. From the there's a lot more women, yeah. And I think we're pretty much half and half now. I'd have to go back and really count. But but it's it's pretty neat. And there's diversity of backgrounds for sure too. So we have an ADM of HR who has spent her entire career doing human resources. That's great because we obviously need – that's a huge area of um, – work at the service to make sure that we're recruiting and staffing um, the right people in the right jobs. So she's fantastic. But uh, there's a there's a lot, a lot more people that have come from outside of the service. And it's a nice balance now. I mean, not to say I think the service needs to have a really good blend of people that have spent their whole career there and who have that deep operational experience and knowledge. And then you need to balance it with a couple of used to be kind of outsiders, I'm putting in loose air quotes, like me, who came to the service with a whole career downtown Ottawa and uh, bring something different to the organization for sure. So we're really nicely balanced now, I would say. So, so where did you come from then? That is a good question. Yeah. <laughs> where did I come from? Career-wise. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so my first job was uh, as an executive assistant to a member of parliament, mm. if you can believe it. So I was working in downtown Toronto. I actually started as her constituency assistant. And that was just one of the most pivotal jobs of my career. Because you're sitting there taking calls from Canadians. They're talking about their personal experiences with the government of Canada. And that's usually challenges they're having with their immigration application, you know, issues they're having with their Canada Pension Plan. I found that a really amazing foundational thing as like now a career bureaucrat to have that kind of deep insight as to how to, you know, government policies really affect people on the ground. So that's where I started. I then worked for her when she became a Minister of State. So I worked as a political staffer for the first 
you know, sort of 10 years or so of my career, which is an interesting background that you can kind of spot the people in the bureaucracy who have been former political staffers, and we all kind of come to it with a slightly unique perspective. Dif- different antennae, presumably. Yeah, yeah, different antenna. And I mean, that's, you know, back to your point, Stephanie, when you're dealing with external public affairs types of issues, I think that helps you a lot because you have a pretty good sense of where things are going to land and where they're not going to land. So that was helpful. Um, so I, I, I then moved over and I worked at the Public Health Agency for uh, a few years doing crisis communications, pandemic communications. And then I took, there was a call letter for people to go work at the Privy Council office and uh, went out to all the deputies and sent, you know, two of your best and brightest. I have no idea how I made that list. (laughs) Really no idea, especially because they were looking for policy analysts Mm. and I was a communicator. So I don't know how I wound up there, but some fabulous ADM in social policy at PCO took a flyer on this comms girl and hired me to do criminal justice policy analysis. So Mm. massive change. And I spent uh, quite a few years at PCO working on files from social policy, criminal justice, public safety, corrections, which is a really interesting, amazing opportunity. But I got over into the SNI side of the world through pandemics. So I'm just going to specify that security and intelligence. That's right, right. SNI. Just for those right. who, who may not be familiar with the term. <laughs> That's right. So it was emergency management, it was a pandemic. So you remember H1N1? Oh, yeah. So I was working on that file, and it's sort of, it's one of those files that bleeds into the security and intelligence world, uh, interestingly. So that was my little segue into the NS side of the national security. <laughs> Do I have to spell that one? <laughs> right, yeah, but it, well, well, no, not that one, but um, <laughs> hopefully not at this point for our listeners. But that's interesting because the, yeah. like, uh, the NICE cop who kind of put out its understanding of what the intelligence and security community looks like in Canada actually put Public Health Agency of Canada yeah. right in there because of that national security element to pandemics and things like that. Absolutely. So. Yep. And I think that's really important there at the table. So I left there and went and worked at Defense, but on the military side. So in the strategic joint staff. And I worked for the current chief of defense staff, John Vance. He was uh, my boss when I moved over there. And the reason he hired me, and I'm getting to the end of my career here if I'm boring all your <laughs> listeners. but Hopefully but, not, literally. Uh, hopefully not, yeah. <laughs> But we'll the, see how the podcast goes over. You can cut whatever you want out of that middle part. <laughs> the The reason uh, John hired me, uh, General Vance, is um, I think he was hoping to have someone who really understood the machine of government. And a few years at the Privy Council office gives you a pretty good understanding about what the Prime Minister's looking for, what Cabinet's looking for. So I went and worked directly with the military on that. I loved that job. It was just an amazing job. And it gave me that taste for operations and how devoted to the mission they are. And so moving over to CSIS, which I did a couple of years ago, uh, five years I've been at CSIS now, and I just sort of slipped over probably for the same purpose. They didn't have a lot of people that had worked downtown at CSIS mm-hmm. at that time. And I think they recognized that there was some value to having people that understood how does the machine work? How do we go and fight for authorities, tools, resources, those types of things? How do we make sure that we're representing ourselves well when it comes to cabinet discussions? And so that's why I ended up at CSIS. I've so been so there you five li- years. lived outside the walled garden, in other words, the yeah. SNI community. And so yeah. it, it, you can know how things work in official Ottawa in a way that perhaps people with different experience wouldn't. That's the theory, exactly. Yeah. And I think, interestingly, we're hoping to send more people that work in CSIS for their whole career. It's a really good idea to have some of those great operational folks go and do a two-year secondment somewhere else, go work downtown, go work at PCO, learn how that works and bring it back. Because I think we are we are less isolated uh, than I think we probably were 35 years ago when the place was created. Mm. So we are now such an integral part of a national security community. We, you know, fit 
And so we need people that are really attuned to where do we fit and why do we fit and when do we fit, those types of things. So. Well, one of the, our frequent guests, Tomas, you know, and myself, we're working on a project on how intelligence and policy kind of work together or sometimes don't uh, in, yes. in that context. So actually, this might be a good segue for you to say what strategic policy is, because, you know, CSIS, it, they like to kind of, you know, they're out in Gloucester. They like to kind of be their little intelligence mountain. And the idea of engagement, even like five years ago yeah. was not really something that was prior to like I don't want to I don't want to downplay it I think you know it's your your job is the literal literally to advise the government of Canada but there's different ways to go about that yes. so since you've been there like how have you seen the role of strategic policy for an intelligence service which really doesn't have a policy role but obviously plays in this world considerably when it comes to policy formulation elsewhere Hundred percent. So I will say the the current director has set sort of three themes for us going forward. So he wants to make our place excellent. He wants to ensure that we have confidence, and that's confidence of Canadians, but all kinds of other people. We'll talk about accountability a little later, and relevance. And the last point is what's really key to the question you just asked: is how do we make sure we have thirty five hundred people or whatever it is that we have at CISAs that are doing incredible work in terms of collecting intelligence? How do we make sure that we are sharing that intelligence with the right people at the right time. That's a really, really important um, function that we're working on every day. And I think we are becoming increasingly relevant every day. Not that we ever weren't, but now I think we're able to be really uh, aware of where the opportunities are and how we make sure that we've injected our intelligence into those spaces when we need to. Not quite the question you asked. You wanted to talk a bit about strategic policy but and it all relates, why. right? It because absolutely The does. reason you want to be relevant is because... Yeah. You want your say in policy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So strategic policy, it's, you're right to say public safety is the policy department, right? So they certainly, I think prior to my arrival, strategic policy was really driven out of public safety and the big themes and, and requirements were driven out of that shop. I think we learned when I got there, I think we realized that there's a need to make sure that we're doing our own work because we're so close to the issues themselves. We're close to the operations. We can identify where are their gaps when it comes to our legislative framework is a really good example. And we can talk about C-59 and how that came about. But also, where are we, to your point, able to see we've got intelligence, we've collected something, our operations are robust in this area. How do we make sure that we're providing that very good advice to the big macro government of Canada policy deliberations? So whether they're talking about a big foreign policy objective that we think we have a piece of the puzzle that can fit well into that, or if they're talking about a change to the legal framework that's outside of our building, making sure that we have properly assessed and analyzed what do we need for our operational requirements so that we've you know put our voice down in the right places to say, don't forget about CSIS, don't forget that we need X, Y, and Z, or where have we managed to find the right places in which to provide really thoughtful advice. And policy, I was thinking a lot about this recently, the difference between policy and assessment. And I know you know an awful lot about intelligence assessment and what that's like and judgments and so on. Policy is a very different um, skill set. Yes. And I know you have a lot of learned listeners to your podcast, uh, lots of policy analysts, uh, including all on my team that listen to this religiously, who it's, it's very, very analytical. It's very evidence-based. You need to make sure that you have collected all the facts, all the pieces of information in the right order and assembled a very tight 
narrative, a story that is substantiated, that you're able to say unequivocally, this is this is the this is what you need in order to be able to develop this policy. So it's a real skill set that's very different from how you might take intelligence and assess it. I find it has been under it had been underdeveloped at the service, and now we have a really, really strong policy shop. And it means back to C59, you know, when you identify that there's areas in which our act is not kept pace, we're able to really go speak to the operational folks, say, what are you trying to achieve? What do you need? And then translate those requirements into law. Like that, that to boil it down, that's a big part of what my strategic policy shop does. So they are the interface. I talk a lot about how we are halfway in between the lawyers that work in our organization and the operators, right? We're not, we're not giving them legal opinions and we're not running operations, but we're trying to contextualize and make sure that the operations are well translated into requirements for legislative change, for instance. So, so, so let me ask, the, there's the, the pattern for the, up to this point, pretty modest amendments to the CSIS Act has often mm-hmm. been reactive, yes. right? So I think about Bill C-44 in 2015, which was a response to the Re-X case about the doubts about the extraterritorial uh, competency of CSIS and its security intelligence operations and investigations that was corrected legislatively. C-51 was a slightly different kettle of fish in a sort of peculiar uh, political environment, but was obviously responding to a view that the that the service should have more proactive capacities to engage in threat reduction. Uh, I think it was a, certainly the attacks on Parliament Hill right, was right. the so that hence the, the so in other words largely reactive. The political space yep. wouldn't have been there otherwise. Uh, then we get to C-59, and the change there is both the change of government, but also the driver, say for data sets would have probably been the ODAC decision by Justice Noel that made that an immediate issue in a way perhaps it wouldn't have been otherwise. And so is is the culture of legislative change in the space, is it ideal for it to be that reactive? Or is is do you see the the vision of, of your office to be, you know, not where the puck is now, yes. to use an analogy, but yeah. where the puck needs to yeah. be in the future so that we can legislate proactively? First question. Second question, how do you in a in a very crowded legislative mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. where national security and defense is often second seat for in terms of priorities of any given government how how do you envisage moving forward with a more proactive strategy Those I are, was hoping that we'd stay away from the hockey uh, I, I <laughs> analogies know, I know on nothing this about team sports and so I feel the need to work in all sorts of cliches involving it was perfect. team sports That's yeah. exactly. I, just, I don't think you can get out of D&D without using hockey analogies uh, there, there are only so many marathon analogies Steve, that one can use so. my colleague Steve Sademan says that like you you know D&D you gotta use hockey analogies so you answer how you wish but I, will, I just I wanted to point that out you are so right uh, you know it was interesting and I'm gonna give a lot of credit to Minister Goodell because the the Liberal government was elected uh, to address was perceived to be deficiencies in C-51 and to make sure that they were addressing concerns that had been expressed about that piece of legislation. And to, to take it from that starting point, that that's what they were going to do, to be able to get what we had in terms of C-59 and that like quite magnificent, in my humble opinion, <laughs> piece of national security legislation was nothing short of extraordinary. And I think there's a lot of factors that worked in our favor. I, I do agree with you that there were some things in there that were quite reactive. But I think the fact that we set out, and back to the transparency discussion, we set out on a very determined path to make sure that we were engaging Canadians and not 
doing this in a black box and not coming out with something that people would scratch their heads and say, I don't know what that means. How can we possibly support it? And it's so much easier for critics to, you know, throw darts at it if they haven't had any opportunity to understand it. So, you know, and I know, you know, you both and many of your guests were part of a really broad stakeholder consultation that was held to be able to develop that piece of uh, legislation. So that gave us a really good foundational piece for what came about from the legislative side to be able to sort of say, we're having a conversation about national security. We're we're we're, we're going to need to make some changes here. We we need to look again at what was in C51, but we made, need to make sure that we're canvassing the whole spectrum of the national security community's uh, legal architecture to make sure that we're not missing something. So it was a it was a really good consultation that took place, and I think the result of it was um, when we introduced that bill into the House, it, it it wasn't. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't without any controversy, but it certainly was respected, and people said you did a good, not just a good bill, but you did a good process that led you to that. So I'm answering your second question first, which is that that's a big part of what we need to do in order to be able to make sure that this continues to be important and on the government's agenda. And I will tell you, it has to be. Like the threat continues unabated. In fact, like it's changing, it's morphing, where counterterrorism is still a no-fail enterprise for our organization. Counterintelligence, the economic prosperity agenda, those types of things are becoming really significant drivers for us. And there's some seriously significant threats that we're trying to address. So we can't afford not to have the right tools in place. And by that, one of the most foundational tools is our legal architecture to make sure that we have the, the right structure in which to be able to carry out our mandate. So, you know, it's got to be a conversation and we've got to make sure that we're hearing from people. We've got to make sure that we're not doing it in the black box so that people don't feel that they haven't had an opportunity to understand what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Criticize it if you want at the end of the day, but at least understand what the objectives are. So that's why, you know, us being able to talk a bit more freely. I think you're seeing CSIS probably talk out, you know, being on podcasts is one thing. I mean, but we're we're out there an awful lot more. We're talking to the private sector. The director was speaking to the Economic Club of Canada. That's, that's something previous directors probably wouldn't have been doing. So I think that's part of it is that, you know, it's not a PR exercise. It's a public understanding exercise that I think we're embarking on. So that when we do come forward, the government will well understand and they won't feel timorous about the degree to which there may be public appetite or not for these types of changes because it will be a bit more normalized. It's not going to be quite as scary a subject matter, we hope. I mean, to your point about reactivity, there are, there have been some issues where I think we have been caught on our back foot. They have been long time in the making. And I think having a really strong strategic policy shop at CESAS allows you to see those things much earlier in their development. Right allows you to say, this one this one's problematic, this one smells, and we're going to have to take a look at this and make sure that we have built the right structure to be able to address that problem. Right. So that, I think we're in a really good shape now. And I think only after spending five years there do I properly understand how it works. <laughs> and my folks are really, really, like they're incredibly smart policy analysts who have really good trusted relationships across the building. So there's no more fear factor. I think now our operators understand, too, that there's advantages to sort of making sure that these things are on the radar, that they're well understood, that they're well communicated to government so that we can actually address them. Because C-59 was a really pleasant experience. Like it was, you know, I mean, it, we went through it. It was difficult. It was challenging. It took a long time. But I mean, from a, from a legislative perspective, you know, it was not, we were able to talk about why do we need data? Why is it so important to a modern intelligence agency? The authorization regime, you know, I think people had thought it was going to be quite 
you know, scary for Canadians to understand what we needed to do in that space. But I think people generally accepted that this was the business that their intelligence agencies should be doing. So I feel quite positive about what we achieved from a transparency objective there in terms of laying out much more clearly, here's what we do and why, and now we have the legal architecture to support it. So I feel like we're in a really good space for the next bound of work that we need to do. And there is more to be done. So you've kind of given us some insight into the process of going through C-59 and, and how you, you know, the services having to learn to communicate very difficult national security issues to a sometimes very skeptical public. Mm-hmm. Is there any other lessons that you guys took away from the C-59 experience? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was really great about C-59 was that it engaged all parts of the national security community. So that was really useful for us to have an awful lot of conversations with our partners next door at the communications security establishment, for instance, about what they were trying to achieve through their legal structure for the changes to the CSE Act. That was really useful. I think making sure that they were at the table at the same time while we were doing policy development. I spoke to it a little earlier. There's the national security community is more and more intertwined. And I say that in a really positive way. I think we've now come to the conclusion that in order to be able to defeat significant national security challenges, we need to make sure that all members of the community are playing their role. So that means making sure we've all got a clear understanding of our mandates, the tools that we have at our disposal, the resources that we have, and making sure that we're working together in a really connected way. There are no more silos in the national security community. I think that's a very good thing. I think it's a very complex thing, especially when you look at it from a legal framework perspective. You have to you know, make sure that things that had been established for very particular reasons for one department or one agency, making sure that they all line up now and that they all connect together, I think that's really complex. And I think the you know, the role of NSEERA is going to be really interesting in that space. There will be a new review agency looking at all of the um, departments and agencies in the community. And that's an area where I think we'll need to pay a lot of attention from the community perspective to make sure that we understand how do we work together, where are the limits of each other's missions and mandates, and how do we um, develop in, in tandem and in sync. So that C-59 was a really good example of that. I think for us and CSE to be developing policy thinking at the same time lent itself to a much better understanding about how we can conduct operations together appropriately, making sure we're respecting each other's mission and mandate and, and tools. But that was a that was a great lesson. And public safety driving that, but having CSE who don't report to Minister Goodell, right, who report to a different minister, but having that kind of collective perspective on it driven by that sort of central hub was a really useful experience for all of us. So I think it brought us a lot closer together as a community. Mm. Now, you said moments ago that there was work still to be done after C-59. I appreciate that there's only so much you can say in this space, especially going into the dissolved parliament in a new electoral cycle. But what can you share in terms of things that as a policy shop from the strategic policy perspective attract your attention at this point? Yeah. Well, I think... As I said earlier, I think one of my lessons learned is, you know, don't don't update your act every 35 years. That's that's not a recipe for success. And you mentioned, obviously, rightly, that C-44 and C-51 were two other attempts at this. But now when I look at the act, you take a look at, you know, how it's broken out, how the, the threats and the specific responsibilities that we have, whether it's for screening, whether it's threats to Canada's national security, whether it's Section 16 of our Act, which is around foreign intelligence, you look at it and you look at the way it was constructed in a very sort of siloed approach. And that was the way it was built in 1984. The threat 
the picture was very different. The technological picture was very different. Mm. I'm not sure it still holds up. And we did we did some really, really good work in terms of modernizing it to address some very particular requirements. But I think we have more to do in that space. I think we have to take another look at make sure that whether it's the way in which we define strictly necessary and what information we need to be able to retain in order to conduct a national security investigation. It's very different in 2019 than it would have been in 1984. The types of information, the amount of information, and I think now that we've built ourselves I think, a very solid foundation from an accountability perspective, which was a huge benefit of C-59, is that you know now we have the structures that we need in place, a new intelligence commissioner, the, the, the sort of the foundational pieces um, of NSERA to be able to build on that and, and take another look at whether or not our act has actually kept pace. This is the right moment for us to do that. It's the right moment for us to take another look. One of the other things that is kind of ongoing is that the government, um, particularly public safety, has announced a new transparency initiative, particularly when it comes to national security. And everything you've kind of been talking about in this Mm -hmm. podcast has really been about learning to speak a little bit more out, being more public facing, all these kinds of things. And one of the main criticisms that we often hear, uh, particularly from journalists and things like this, is that we, we still don't know what's going on. Maybe journalists have a different wanting to know what's going on than, say, the average Canadian citizen. But there are some issues here around transparency, and there's been a, a couple of steps taken in this going forward. But I'm wondering, how are how is the service really looking at this issue in terms of uh, accountability or just trying to promote understanding of national security generally? Because yeah, the Transparency Initiative has very discrete principles that are, are supposed to set the bar. Yeah. It seems to me higher than it has been set before. We talked about in one of our prior podcasts that Canadians should be entitled to know about the the legal genesis of some interpretations. That's probably overstating what the principle says. But there there is language about understanding Mm -hmm. the legal parameters in a rule of law society Mm -hmm. about the conduct of a given service. Uh, And so what does that mean in practice when you try to translate those general principles into the the CESA space? Mm -hmm. CSIS is an organization that needs to keep some secrets. I think where we need to get to is a place where we have really, really respected credibility when it comes to us being able to say to a journalist, an academic, (laughs) a court, um, this is a secret. Like we really, this would be very injurious to national security for us to release this information. And I want people, when we say that, when I say that, when anyone says that, to say, okay, you you know, we respect it and we understand it and we none of us would want to go there. So that's the space I want to get into. I'm not I'm hoping we're not too far away from that. I am hoping that a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years is trending in the right direction. I'm hoping that people are feeling like they're starting to know no, more and more about what CSIS does and why. It's going to take us some time to sort of unpack all of that. I'm worried a little bit about massive amounts of document reviews or us trying to go back through all of our operational policies and find ways in which to be able to make those transparent. We've got a massive amount of work to do right now. We, we really do. I mean, the threat is really significant. I feel we're all a bit run off our feet in that organization. And that's to say that I think what we need to do is thoughtfully look at what are some 
principled ways in which we can take that objective and then develop some products that basically explain much better to Canadians, to journalists, to academics, to say, here's what we do generally. This is the sort of, these are the principles in which we are governing these types of operations and try to have that be something that satisfies that requirement. So we tell you what it is that we're doing. We tell you what it is that are the authorities that we're relying upon. The the productive nature of going back through massive troves of information and so on, I think that's quite limited. Mm. So I'm hoping that we can find a way to be able to meet that objective because it's 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 one we want to meet. There are no downsides to people better understanding what we do for a living and why. Frankly, one of my biggest pieces is that I think the people that work at CSIS are extraordinary. They come to work every day because they're devoted to the mission, the mandate. They get up in the morning because they want to protect Canada and Canadians. I think it's the most extraordinary mission. And people are so passionate about it. And I think they would be delighted to have more people know this is what we do for a living. This is why we do it. This is why it's so important. So we should be proud of that. And we should find ways in which to be able to communicate that and try to reduce a bit any mistrust that exists, any sort of degree of cynicism. Those are the types of things that we're trying to address. So I think there's there's a lot of appetite for it. I think there's a lot of goodwill that can be bought with that in terms of making sure people understand when we come to the table and say we need this. Or as importantly, when we come to the table and say this is a threat, like we're very concerned about this and you need to you know be aware of it and you need to take the following actions, whether it's government or whether it's the Canadian public, that people respect us and we are a very credible voice. You know, it's interesting. We've done public opinion research for the first time ever, and we are a respected and credible voice with Canadians. So, you know, that 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 sort of baseline is, is good and we reflect on it. But at, at the same time, there's a lot more that can be done because I don't think Canadians genuinely understand what we do and why we do it. So that's what's driving me on the transparency objective. Mm-hmm. That's really what I think about a lot is how do we make sure that people know why what we do is so important. And I really do think there's a lot of stakeholders, though, that also need to know this is what we do, this is why it's important, and here's how we govern ourselves. So I'm 100% on board with that. I really am. But I just want us to be thoughtful about how do we devote enough resources to meet that need, but not not to do things that are not going to be, they're going to be low value for the amount of effort that it would undertake to to achieve it. Well, it's always been my hypothesis that confronted with, uh, first of all, you've got a statutory framework, which most people aren't familiar with, Mm -hmm. uh, which does obviously circumscribe what it is that the service does. But confronted with an issue that may arise in the public eye, a lack of familiarity with that statutory framework, but then on top of that, not knowing how it's operationalized. So the the concept of lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent, which is a constraint on on the uh, concept of threat to the security of Canada. That's right. Uh, So... I've seen personally, because I get them through ATIP, the policies that, that govern that. Yep. But not having a backgrounder, for example, on the CSIS website that allows you to say, well, look, this is how this concept is employed in practice. It seems to me that it becomes a lot easier for people to assume the worse. Yep. Um, it, it, do you think that's I, a I, fair I, proposition? I, I agree with you. I agree. And I think you, uh, you will note that in our recent annual report, we put forward a pretty good accounting of how we manage our foreign information right. sharing. Uh, and I think that was, you know, that was something I had put my mind to it, thinking about transparency, thinking about the areas in which there is some concern on the part of Canadians. Where do we need to buttress their their confidence to be able to say, we actually have a really rigorous process. I'm accountable for that process in our organization. And I feel acutely the need to tell people how good it is, like how much effort we put into this. I think it's 
really important, and it's come a long way. So a lot of the criticisms that exist in the public right now on that space, uh, they are quite historical, and they are not current with the contemporary practices and how we manage it. So there's a great example, and you're entirely right, Craig, there's probably another 10 things we could think of off the top of our head where people might be worried about the way in which we do our business. Lawful advocacy and protest is probably a really good one. And to give people the confidence about here's how we manage it, like here's how, you know, here's there's the explicit piece in our in our in our in our legal framework, as you've just pointed out, it's in our statute. But how do we make sure that people understand well this is exactly what it means? So they're not having to like unpack or untease when they're seeing things come out in the media, what it is that we do and why. So you're right. It's it's something we need to do proactively and we need to think about what are the highest risk areas from a confidence perspective and then try to make those top of our priority list in terms of these are the ones we care about. These are the things that we should be pushing forward. And listen to Canadians and try to understand, you know, where are you most concerned? Like what are the areas in which you would, you know, when you associate CSIS with something, what, what is it that we can do to make sure that we're increasing and enhancing confidence? It's 100 percent an, ob an objective. It's something that I think is going to be really good for the service. But again, just back to, you know, we have to think about how do we do that smartly so that we're not just doing the old practice of reviewing old documents and trying to find ways in which to redact them to release. Right. That's not the point. We'd actually have to rewrite them because otherwise I'm, you're not going to be content if I send you the policies that currently exist where we have to redact lots of it because it wasn't actually intended for public distribution, right? So how can we yeah. find a way to actually properly articulate in a way that is unclassified to Canadians how we do our business? I wish we had hundreds more people that we could devote to this, but it's a smallish operational right. agency and we have like a really important function. And I think we're, we're augmenting our strategic policy shop. We're looking at our external review compliance shop. There's areas in which we're, we're adding resources to be able to address these challenges uh, and these requirements, but we've got to sort of like, let's not pick our battles, but we're going to have to prioritize. So you've kind of spoken about, you know, the the experiences that you've had working on C-59 and, and thinking about going forward. I'm just, I guess one of the questions I have is, how, you know, we, we're about a year now, a year and a bit into having the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. How mm -hmm. has this kind of new form of review affected your operations? I mean, the, the nice thing about having had CERC is that you guys, unlike, say, the Department of Defense, were actually used to having review, but has any of that kind of changed your operations at all? Let me think about how to answer, has it changed our operations? Or, sorry, it's very new. No, I, I mean, it's interesting, right? We're, we're really, we're just one year into the Committee of Parliamentarians, so they've done, they had quite an aggressive agenda, and they got through an awful lot of reviews. I'm pretty impressed that they were able to do that with a very small staff. You're right to say that we were well set up to be able to respond to CERC, so I have a pretty, I have a really good group that work for me that have been doing that for many, many years. And we were able to, as a service, leverage those people to be able to support our relationship with the Committee of Parliamentarians. Not everybody was in the same boats. And yeah. it was it was great. I mean, my staff were, you know, they were out meeting with other departments, talking to them about how do you support reviews? Okay. How does the methodology work? You know, and it was, it's been a really interesting experience. Again, back to bringing the national security community closer together, sharing best practices in that space, because other partners of ours, CSE and RCMP, there's others that have very good, um, you know, bodies that are set up to be able to deal with these as well. But, but this was this was a really sort of a communal effort to see how are we gonna how are we gonna um, learn from each other to be able to meet these uh, requirements. But working with the uh, committee of parliamentarians this year has been, I think, quite unique and in a really positive way. Mm. Um, I th I was, you know, and I know there's others, other colleagues of mine 
uh, very big proponents of the establishment of this type of an organization. It has been a bit frustrating from time to time for us to not be able to unpack underneath uh, a review. Here's the classified information that you need. When we go into the House of Commons to a parliamentary committee, a Senate committee, you are you are kept at the unclassified level, and there have been times where you find that a bit a bit difficult because you would like to sort of explain exactly what it is that's underneath it and you can't. I have found it really refreshing to have a venue where we can go in and and put in front of them all the documents that they need at every level of classification in order to understand the issue from beginning to end. Also, the fact that they were interagency, I found was terrific. And and CIRA is going to be like that soon too. So that will be a real advantage to the community because there's there's no you know start and end points to a national security investigation. There's always other partners that are engaged and involved in it. So for the committee of parliamentarians to be able to look at an issue from the thirty thousand foot to be able to see all the departments that are implicated and involved in that, and to be able to do the comprehensive review at a classified level, I have found extremely refreshing, and I think it's been a really good experience. So I I give them a lot of credit. They hit the ground running, and I think what they have produced in terms of their reports have been, you know, largely well received. We still have to work out kinks in terms of methodologies and how we operate. You know, the the first couple of times we're trying to figure out how do you redact the documents that they do want to produce for public reporting purposes. That was a bit of a learning curve. And so we're all working through that together. But I think the experience has been a genuinely positive one. In terms of the impact to operations, I think it's it's, it's certainly, it's informing our operations. There's no question about it. It's the, the, the recommendations. They don't fall on deaf ears. They don't land with a thump on our desks and we say, well, that's interesting and push it away. As we then kind of carry forth in the operations that they may have commented on, those recommendations and their perspectives are very alive in our mind and how we actually make ourselves better. Like we have for so many years worked with CERC. CERC has provided us with a lot of insights uh, into our own operations. We have changed, modified, we've brought forward legislation as a consequence of reviews, and I think that the NCCOP is going to be another great tool and a resource for us to be able to identify challenges and also understand our challenges. And that has been a huge advantage to us, to be able to put plainly in front of cleared parliamentarians, here's the problem. It's a complex one. I want you to understand it. And I think that has been really, really useful for parliamentarians to also get a better and deeper appreciation of where our limitations are and where we actually maybe don't have the right resources, tools, authorities, those types of things. So I think it's been a great experience. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast is part of the problem is, you know, we, we tend to have, and you alluded to this in your comments earlier, that, you know, we tend to do this once every decade where we introduce these kind of large omnibus national security bills. And, and this really doesn't seem to be a sustainable way to go future, given the way that things are changing so fast. So I, I guess, you know, in kind of as, as we're moving to the end of the podcast, like how do you see this mm. really going forward? Mm. I'm hoping we're at a point now, and I think part of this will build upon the transparency agenda that we're trying to move forward with, the accountability building blocks that we've put in place. I think it's really important now that we look at changes to our act on a regular and ongoing basis. This is something we're going to need to keep our act modern and we're going to need to do it often. And it should become a very normalized part of the legislative process. You know, I've worked for other government departments where changes to X, Y, or Z act is just standard. They're doing it 
all the time. And it's not seen as something that should be taboo or it's going to be problematic or nobody wants to touch it. I'm hoping we're getting to a place now where the CSIS Act can be updated, modernized to deal with changes, whether it's in the, the legal framework, technology, threats, that we're able to make sure that if there are gaps, deficiencies, if we need to buttress it to be able to make it more explicit what we're doing and why, I'd like us to get to a point of doing that on a regular basis. Now, I'm conscious that we could probably spend a lot more time talking about these issues. It's been fascinating. I'm also conscious of the fact that we're all that's standing between you and holiday. <laughs> so so maybe a well-deserved holiday. Um, and maybe... I, uh, I'll just uh, end with one final question, which we often ask to our guests from government. Stephanie and I both instruct students who have an interest in this issue area, national security writ large. If you were to give advice to students, in my case, law students, in Stephanie's case, masters of arts students, who might have an interest in moving into the national security space, what advice might you give? So with your law students, I guess I would say there is no more interesting area of the law than national security law. I agree. I, I feel very strongly about I that. I tell that to my tax colleagues all the time. You should. <laughs> well, tax law sounds really fun. <laughs> national security law, super dynamic, very creative. So if you've got students that like puzzles, that like working in spaces that are very gray and amorphous and constantly changing, that's the place that they want to work. It is the most interesting part of the law that I can imagine. Strategic policy is a very near sister to uh, national security law. So you may even have law students that are more interested in doing policy analysis than they are in doing the legal parts of, uh, of this work. But, um, you know, I think we are hiring people that are and this is Masters of Arts students as well, creative, problem solvers, dynamic, interested in looking outside of the box. Like those are the types of people that we're looking at. And we need people from every part of every discipline uh, in any university. Like we have chemists, we have librarians, we have, like we have needs for all kinds of occupations in our organization. So I think it's mostly just about mentality. If you care an awful lot, if you're passionate about this mission, about protecting Canada and Canadians, there isn't any better place to work than CSIS. I'm sure my colleagues at Defence will, you know, not be happy with me for saying that, but I will tell you, this is Maybe an also CSE, but right that's fine. CSE, but this is an incredible place to work, and you will come to work every day and feel like you're making a difference. Great. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us in late July, <laughs> and and thanks for avoiding the intelligence to evidence issue because I cannot right now. <laughs> We're doing that next, aren't we? <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> It, it an entire season. It, it's our new sponsoring member now that C59 is through. Uh. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much and, and enjoy your holiday. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks. Cheers.